0: Hello, and welcome to another edition of Kaleidoscope. This is Magda Zenon, recording from quite a warm And with me in the virtual studio, I have Machilo Mozai, who I've wanted to meet either virtually or physically for quite a long time. Welcome, Machilo.
1: Thank you. Thank you, Marta. Lovely to
0: meet you. Um, Machilo is an African mystic, author, healer, and midwife. She started her career as a... A nurse, a midwife, a nursing lecturer, a social science researcher, and a community development facilitator—quite a broad base of stuff you've done. But all of what you do is based on community, and a lot of what you do is based on Indigenous and specifically women within the context of where you live. I also know that you are doing—you've just finished a project on your thesis on Indigenous midwifery. So let's start from there and see where the conversation takes us.
1: Yes. Yes, I have just finished uh, my PhD in sociology with the University of Pretoria, uh, where I was focusing on Indigenous midwifery as a counter to obstetric violence. Obstetric violence is the violence that women are subjected to when they are giving birth. And um, it's a global phenomenon. It's something that happens all over the world, uh, well-resourced and under-resourced countries. Um, and a lot of the solutions that are put forward uh, to counter obstetric violence are solutions that are also embedded in the medicalization of childbirth. Um, so I am... Um, because of my work with uh, rural women mainly. And also many years ago when I trained as a midwife, I trained in a rural village, in a hospital in a rural village. And um, I've always wanted to work with um, indigenous midwives and understand the knowledge uh, that's suppressed. Um, There's quite a lot of knowledge that we have lost already but there are some that are still practicing.
0: So, um, to, inter- to interrupt you, Masjila, we have it's quite a serious problem here as well in Cyprus as well because what the pregnant woman, the pregnant couple, they are not provided with all the information they should be provided with. They're not given the choices. The mm. choice comes from the doctor or from the system. Mm. Um, and often it's not the best choice for the specific, age specific person.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, so,
0: and that is violence in itself because you go true. in not feeling not feeling comfortable, not being well informed. Yes. And then suddenly being presented with a situation you said, wow, I, maybe I should have done it another way.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. Uh, that's a very good example of uh, when we talk about obstetric violence, uh, people tend to think about violence being physical or vet. Um, And the example that I have just given is also, and it's it's kind of illustrated violence can be structural, can be systemic. Um, uh, Violence can be a result of a lack of choice, lack of knowledge. Violence can be a result of suppression of people's knowledges. Um, uh, There is a um, a woman who lives in the U.S. Robbie Davis Floyd. She's an anthropologist. She has written quite extensively about birth. And her argument is, even when you give birth in a hospital, you go through Western rituals. Uh, When you take off your clothes and you put on that gown that exposes your back, um, when they connect you to missions, um, when they do vaginal examination without even asking for your permission, uh, for your consent, um, when they intervene in the birthing process, um, whether they intervene uh, surgically or not, um, she argues. Davis Floyd argues that um, it's 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 violent. It's it's a way in which uh, women are exposed to foreign rituals. Um, I was reading a week ago about this woman who says, um, when you are in that space, it's foreign territory. Firstly, you don't even understand the language that the medical personnel uses. Nobody tells you what is happening. and many of the women are alone, Um, they give birth alone. And she was saying that uh, to deal with that violence, women leave their bodies. You're kind of there, you're alive, but you exit your body as a way of coping. Uh, uh,
0: I have to tell you, Machilo, that I recently, it wasn't an obstetric intervention, but I recently had an angiogram, I had a mild heart attack and they did an angiogram. And they put me into the room, and they cover your breasts with the material for the X-ray machine, and then there's a piece of material that covers you from your breasts between your legs. I was in this room with one doctor and three male assistants, and I thought to myself, and I'm a confident woman, okay? Mm. I'm not, I'm confident because I have knowledge and I'm educated, whatever. And I, I wasn't comfortable, and I actually sent a message to both my cardiologist and my the doctor that did the intervention, I said, you know what? Not nice, not comfortable. Mm. There's got to be the um, acknowledgement that there is a vulnerability about being naked.
1: Yeah.
0: So you've got to take into account that that vulnerability can be um, counterbalanced by either the same sex person being in the room or more more knowledge being in the room. And when I told the cardiologist, she said to me, you know, Thank you for mentioning. It's quite strange because the nurse responsible at that hospital is actually a woman, mm. and even the woman did not think of the fact that a woman at the table with four men in the room is not going to be happy. Mm. Mm. You actually—it's the violence of the system. Of
1: yeah,
0: that's, you that's have to deal with it.
1: That's a form of. You, I, of I actually
0: used to I, I laughed through it because that was my coping method. Yeah. Me? Uh, me? Yeah. I giggled yeah. through it. Yeah. That was their way. But you find a way to deal with it because it's not comfortable yeah. when your specific bodily needs, not your bodily needs, your sensitivities are not actually put into the conversation, the yeah. equation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Right. Mm. So, I mean, um, it's, you, you say that, uh, you know, the vulnerability of being in the room naked, but it's also a foreign room in one way exactly. or the other. Mm. Because you have no idea what is happening. And uh most of the time there may be no explanation. Um, you know, as to what is happening. So in my research, um I think I I have kind of made three recommendations. Uh the role of indigenous midwives in countering obstetric violence, number one is to de-center medicalization because biomedical model of childbirth is interventionist. Um, and it comes from the belief that pregnancy and childbirth is a pathology and that a woman's body um, you know, is abnormal. Uh, it needs medical intervention um so it is therefore um important to decenter biomedical model of childbirth and um, the other recommendation was uh recenter the knowledge of indigenous midwives because indigenous midwives are non-interventionist they don't intervene uh they they believe in the in the notion of embodied knowledge of birthing. They believe that the body knows how to give birth. They don't do vaginal examinations, as an example, unless if there is a complication. Um, So it's to bring back recenter the knowledge of of indigenous midwives. And the last one is, um, just kind of adding on the notion of cultural safety as part of a definition of safety thing. Um, In the medical,
0: biomedical... So what you're saying is that I can understand it. So you're saying because the the body has given birth for centuries.
1: Yeah. So the
0: body knows what it's doing. So listen to the body and only intervene if you see the body is in distress.
1: Yes, yeah. That's, uh, okay. that's what they, what I found amazing is how I met with the elders and, um, most of them were saying like childbirth is not that difficult, uh, you know, they said that over and over. And that made me laugh because, um, uh, I mean, I have said earlier that, uh, biomedicine defines pregnancy pregnancy and childbirth as a pathology, so as a condition. And therefore, um, it's kind of based on the notion of risk. Um, That it's risky. Um, So that's why I say, we need to broaden the definition of safe birthing to include cultural safety. Um, There was one woman who says, OK, the nurses treated me well, but I was in a foreign place. Um, I didn't understand anything, so I felt unsafe. So even if the nurses treated her well, um, she, she felt unsafe culturally. And the notion of cultural safety uh, was coined by my own nurses, uh, but now it's become global where they are talking about, uh, you know, the knowledge, the cultural knowledge, um, the rituals, the ceremonies, and the spaces where we give birth must be such that uh, they don't make us feel foreign. So that's kind okay. of a summary of, of the research.
0: Okay, that's, uh, that's very, very interesting, and I think it's what we're all Especially as feminists are realizing that you've got to go back to the original way of working because we've been forced or a patriarchal system has been forced of us that it on us that actually takes none of our needs into consideration yeah and this is one of them yes it puts us in a foreign system in a foreign space with um, regulations that are not that we're not comfortable with or don't take our needs into consideration, and we need to take it back.
1: Yeah, and a lot of disrespect for the woman's body.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, okay. Is there anything else you want to add to that? And
1: I, I think, uh, basically, um, I'm, it was very draining for me to do the research. Um, it was triggering at many levels. Uh, Why? Because some of the things that we see and uh, envision as the norm, you know, we forget to look at uh, how, as an example, medicalization of childbirth has been used as a colonial tool historically in Africa. Um, so, So it was triggering for me because as a young woman, I went to study midwifery in a hospital, and mm-hmm. at my age now, I went to work with indigenous midwives. And it was triggering in a sense that when you kind of realize how the training and the system kind of uh, makes you complicit with your own colonization, makes you complicit, ma- makes you complicit with the suppression of indigenous mm. peoples of the world. So it was triggering, but it was also a place of liberation for me, you know. I was about uh,
0: to say that.
1: Um I, I appreciated it uh, for that reason.
0: Okay, that the minute you realize the colonization system within you, it is very liberating because yeah. you can step out of it or else you can step out of it gradually. Yeah. Because Cyprus is very similar to Cyprus is also a British colony,
1: uh-huh.
0: and that it might not have created a system like the apartheid system, but it created a system that separated Turkish-speaking and Greek-speaking people.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And the colonization of the decisions come from the top down
1: yeah. was
0: very, is very much embedded, and I think that's one of the things that's very South African, yeah. that we used to expect decision making to come from above, yet now we know it comes bottom up, else it don't work. Yeah. That's Unless,
1: true.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay, because you do you do a lot of women work with women, um as a woman that's focused on women, woman, peace and security and conflict, uh I know you've done work on sexual violence woman with women. Yeah. And I know it's quite personal to you. Uh so domestic please, violence, uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh so please Share with me, with us, what you've learned and what we still need to learn, as much as you can.
1: Um, okay. I, I started an organization called ADAPT at Alexander Township, just outside of mm. Johannesburg in the late 90s. And I'm happy to say that the organization is still running. You know, it kind of, uh, wow. it's uh, <laughs> very satisfying when you have started How something. old is it? I started it in um, 1991.
0: Wow, you're 32 years old. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, bravo. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, So how did the organization start? I was working uh, at the vet Medical School. I was responsible for taking fourth-year medical students on field trips. And one of the places that we used to go to is Alexander Clinic. And uh, at that time, I had been trained as a nurse. And, um, and then at one point, in fact, it, it goes back before then, when I was still a nurse practicing in Pretoria, in one of the hospitals in Pretoria, a woman was, was wheeled in a wheelchair with an axe stuck in her knee bone.
0: Knee Whoa.
1: And I remember uh, looking at her and knowing that I have been trained to just focus on the physical injury, Uh, that uh, the medical model has kind of trained me to focus on the injury and that I should only attach to the injury. And I think that's where the first seed was planted as well, because I remember saying to myself, One day, I'm going to do do something about it. And then many years later, I'm taking medical students to Alexander Clinic. And then there's another woman who is abused. And I observe the kind of questioning that the doctor does. And then it reminded me that, uh, you know, uh, gender-based violence is a public health concern. And... uh,
0: but it's only approached as the specific thing you see yes. in front of you. Yeah. It's not holistic yeah. in yeah. the person, yeah. the history, yeah. the context.
1: Right. So then afterwards, I went to do research where I reviewed records, clinic records of women who came in with a history of assault. And mm-hmm. uh, the intention was to see, uh, you know, how the doctors approach it. So it was very, very clear that... Uh, the doctors approached it in a medical way. Uh, Suture the laceration, give medication, take x ray, uh, all of that. And, and, home. and then maybe you get discharged. There's no concern about uh, are you safe um, when you go home? You know, there's no concern about your psychological needs. Um, the focus is only on the physical. And after doing that uh, uh, review of records uh, of women who came in with a history of assault, I then started the organization at the clinic. So what happened was when there was a woman who was abused, the doctors and the nurses would refer her, uh, you know, to our building. So the woman didn't have to go home without having had psychological support without us assessing uh, how safe or unsafe she is. And uh, at the time we didn't have any shelters, but we were connected to other shelters in Johannesburg. So in the case where the woman was unsafe, we would call um, one of the shelters to ask if they don't have space for her. Um, And in the case where the woman had to go to the police station one of us would accompany her um, so that she's not alone. And that's how ADAPT started. And um, during my tenure there, I worked there for 10 years, I developed a community empowerment model in addressing gender-based violence. Okay. Right. And the model argues that the woman is the entry point into families and communities. So you cannot just work with her. Not only that, the fact that you cannot just work with her physically only, you have to work with her holistically. But part of the holistic intervention also means that uh, she does not live in isolation. She lives in a family. Um, The violence comes from the family. The violence impacts on the family. Everyone
0: in the family.
1: And the family is part of the community. Um, So the community empowerment model argued that the woman is just an entry, is an entry point to the entire system. So we have to find a way of working with the entire system. So what we used to do was to uh, go to schools, go to work with police officers doctors, nurses, social workers, uh, traditional healers in the community, um, use art, culture, to raise awareness about uh, the the scourge of gender-based violence. And uh, one of the things that we did, we were very instrumental in doing as adults, was to introduce the concept of men as part of the solution. Uh, to violence against women,
0: uh, we. Organized. I think that's very that's very important that we've got yeah. to remember that you yeah. can't do you can't solve or transform the gender based violence into something not happening unless you include the men. Yeah. We can't do this alone.
1: Yeah, that's true. And uh, we we organized the first uh, at the time in the late nineties the first men's march against rape. Um, uh, and, uh, then how
0: many, how many, how many participants did you have in that?
1: At the march? Mm. it was quite a lot, a lot of people. Um, it was, uh, I don't know. It's like, uh, more than 20 years ago, but I, we were many we, as we were marching towards the stadium, there were many of us and it was led by the premier of Hauden province at the time. Uh, and and some of uh kind of significant leaders in the community. Um that's, males that's how the project started.
0: Oh um, good. Yeah. Yeah. I think I also think you need to put into context that in South Africa gender based violence is an epidemic.
1: It is. Pandemic it's a pand- have, pandemic.
0: It's a pandemic. It's the numbers are higher than most countries in the world. Yeah. Yes. do so that, um, thirty people realise that, and it's what you say. You, when people see things, they are so anyway. Um, so it's something that is really important, and as you say, because women are the entry point into the community, unless it's dealt with holistically, there's no way that South Africa can create a community that's healthy.
1: Yeah, but also the one, the flip side of that is that uh, you know um not many of the interventions focus on healing healing for both men and women Uh,
0: absolutely
1: there's a need for that and a lot of the work that i do now uh is focusing on healing um i'll give you an example last year i uh is it last year or year before i used to uh, kind of get around and do And I mean, you'll share the the link to my website. People can go and watch some of the short videos that we did when we were talking to men. Um, One uh, elder uh, that we interviewed um, was sharing a story about how he raped a young woman in his youth. And he said, Uh, And this is something that i always share when I have a chance. He says, he said, the wound of a rapist does not heal. And we've never thought of the notion of um, the wound of a rapist.
0: Well, you don't think of the perpetrator. You always think of the victim. You yeah. always think of the victim only. You don't yeah. think that there's a reason. Yeah, not that it explains it away. Yeah, but there's a there's a wound in that person that is committing the rape.
1: Yeah, and because there's a wound, wound, um, um, that's why it continues perpetually. Mm. Of course, it it's reinforced by inequalities, gender inequalities. It's reinforced here in our country by. High systemic violence high unemployment rate poverty mm. um it's reinforced by the fact that violence is the language that we seem to understand and it's a legacy of apartheid yes mm. um, so we have not also as a nation we have not healed uh we carry uh, a collective wound uh, that has but not I... been addressed that has not healed
0: But I think that's one of the things a lot of people don't understand about South Africa is that there might have been a stop transition when Mandela came into power, was released and came into power, but no one thinks of the intergenerational trauma of the people that actually experienced apartheid.
1: Right. The trauma
0: didn't just go away. No. And it was transferred to children and the children of the children. And no one has thought that you can't suddenly say, well, now you've got your rights well, and it's all over. It doesn't happen like that. And people don't understand this—not um, the logic, the fact that trauma you might not physically show it, but it comes out in your behavior and the way you treat the people around you, in the things you do every day, and it needs to be addressed in each one of us. Yeah, we all carry it in yeah, some way. It
1: does, and and it's also for oppressed—not um, only for oppressed. Let me. Let not me, only for oppressed. Not only for oppressed. For for all of us, it's multigenerational. Uh, we pass on from we pass it on from one generation to the other, and um, you know, for instance, in the in my work with birthing, one of the things that I'm getting into now is the issue of birth trauma, uh, that the trauma that you experience, um, maybe Actors. how how the baby was conceived, uh, the experience during pregnancy. Um, the trauma that you may have experienced at, at birth um, is something that we carry all the time. And unless the spaces were firstly that is spoken about, that more and more people become aware, I was with a mother. Acknowledge, and acknowledge. And acknowledge. Yeah. I was with a mother uh, a few days ago of a young, the, the child is in her 30s now. And she, she says that when I was pregnant with her, I was quite depressed and suicidal. And I think I have passed on that to her. And um, once she was born, I no longer wanted to die because I felt that I have a responsibility to take care of her. But there is a way where I feel that I experienced birth trauma that I passed on to, to her. Mm. What I like about these kind of conversations is that as we become more and more vocal about all kinds of wounds that we are carrying and also creating spaces for healing the wounds, um, that's how we kind of uh, uh, contribute to, we basically stop the passing on. Yes, from the the passing on from one generation to the other,
0: or mini- or minimizing it at the least. Yes, minimizing
1: it,
0: it at yes, the yes. least. Yes, true, true. Yeah, yeah. Because here, here in Cyprus, I don't know how much you know about our, the history, but we had a, we became a republic in sixty, in between sixty three to sixty seven, there was communal fighting between the Greek Cypriots and the Turkish Cypriots. Thank you, England. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then in seventy four. There was an invasion from Turkey, an overthrow of the government by the Greeks, an invasion by Turkey. We are still in a we still don't have a solution. The island is divided, and you we go through checkpoints, and no one's talking about the fact that we're sitting on a frozen conflict. Mm. Everyone's just blaming. Yes. No one's actually sitting together and saying, you know what? We've all gone through it in a different way, but we've all gone through it. So my pain is, we all experiencing some kind of pain, and we've got to acknowledge that. I have ownership of my pain and you have ownership of yours. It, it doesn't need to conflict. And unless we actually stop blaming each other yeah. and not saying it was his fault, unless we stop othering.
1: Yes. Yeah. The
0: nothing is going to heal. Nothing the, the chance of actually finding a middle of the road solution hmm. to reunite the island because the island we've got checkpoints and half the island The whole island is in the EU, but half the the island has the key community frozen, so half the island there is no um, international recognition. Mm. Hmm. It's a very unique setting. Mm. But unless we find a way of actually acknowledging the fact that we all have pain, pain, there's no levels of pain, Mm. we've got to acknowledge what we did wrong as well.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Or what we didn't... And then once we go that maybe then we could find a way to creating a healthier yeah. community and a healthier self. Right.
1: And when we when we approach what we did wrong, it's not from a place mm. of blame or beating ourselves. Exactly. Up. Mm. It's from acknowledging our contribution, number one, but also knowing that we also got that from somewhere. Right? And uh, and when you know that you've you got that from somewhere, then you don't beat up on yourself, you know, to say, I shouldn't have done this. You realise the responsibility that, uh, you know, this cycle stops with me. Yes. Um, And it doesn't matter how old you are. Um, You could be, you know, in your advanced age, and when that knowledge comes to you, um, when you heal yourself, you heal the generation that has passed and you're also like healing the ones that comes after you. Um, if you, if you, if you do that kind of healing as a young woman, um, I mean, in African, uh, spirituality, you heal the unborn and the departed. Um, okay. so, so when you, when you take responsibility for your own healing, it's not just for you, it's secular. You know, um,
0: and it's also what you say. It's not a case case of blame yes. blaming anyone. Yeah, it's yeah. a case of putting the story out there. Yeah. Firstly, getting it out of your system so it doesn't create an internal wound. Yeah. By, and secondly, getting out the story that firstly, also you're not alone. Yeah. But you're sending out the right energy, and I like that that you also um, heal the unborn.
1: Yeah. You heal the unborn. Okay. Um, you know because. I mean, uh, we are energy, we are spirits, um, so, um, the reason why I am doing a lot of work on myself as a healer as well, uh, in fact, for, for some time now, I have not been seeing other people, I've been focusing on my own healing, um, and, and why I'm doing what I'm doing is that, uh, you know, I have twin uh, uh, granddaughters, you know, every time when I see them, they remind me that I need to do the work on myself, the internal work on myself, so that they don't have to carry that spiritual debt, so to speak, you know. Um, So and, and my, I mean, my daughter as well, in fact, even my my sons, I mean, I have two boys and one girl. for us, going for healing is is like breathing. Uh, it's something that they do very easily. Whenever some something comes up, and they need to go and see someone, um, and and they also understand that when when one of us does work on themselves, it impacts on the entire system. Um.
0: Firstly, it impacts on the family and yes. then it works on the entices. Yeah. It's actually what I've, I'm trying to get my son to go for a bit of healing because my son's adopted.
1: Mm.
0: Um, I've done a really good job of talking about it because I've, he asks me the difficult questions, which means I've created a safe space. But I also think he needs to do the internal work because as much as there's a safe space and he's happy and calm within the sure. family we have Yeah. there's something within him that does need to be healed and I can see it he's now 28 mm. and I can see anger in him and I'm trying to work out where it comes from and part of me feels that if he could do the work better
1: yeah
0: or more focused or consciously yeah it would help him firstly
1: yeah because
0: there's definitely. anger coming out to me and I know uh, there's anger coming out and it's I know it's not anger to me I know it's not directed to yeah me. yeah
1: yeah, yeah.
0: But that's, you, you only go for healing when you are ready. To when heal. you're ready,
1: yeah. I mean, it's uh, um, healing is, is, is something that you do for you, in you. Um, yeah, you've got to be ready uh, for it. You've got to be at least open. Yes. Yeah,
0: open uh, to go through it. Yes, you do. It's, I mean, I also did a bit of psychotherapy here that works similar to what you are saying from birth. <coughs> I didn't have a particularly good therapist, and I felt the blame game, so I stopped seeing that person. Mm. Mm. It wasn't just a discussion, it was, think about why that is happening to you. Yeah. And yeah. there's no rationalization to me, There's a, it's an energetic thing.
1: Yeah, sure.
0: It's not rationalizing. Yeah,
1: yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. Um is there anything we want to add to this, or can we speak a little bit about creating community Community development, which to me is the ultimate destination of everything we've been talking about?
1: Yeah, I think uh, we are living in an era in the world where uh, building communities is particularly important. Um, and
0: challenging.
1: Very challenging. Um, and uh, I've always worked in communities. So uh, for me, it's something that I have always done. Um, I mean, I, this morning I was reading around the issue of indigenous midwives as community leaders, because when we think about leadership, mostly we use uh, Western theories, to define, to define leadership. If not, uh, we also use masculinist uh, views of leadership. Mm. Um, so when we talk about community building, so the leaders on the ground are the women. Always. And we need to define them as leaders. Uh, unfortunately, people's definition of, of, of leadership is limited to politics. Uh,
0: That's so narrow. If you're so not in
1: politics, when they say write something about leadership, I think uh, most people will immediately think about a political leader or uh, a corporate leader. You know, Absolutely. A, a business leader. Um, they wouldn't necessarily think about the woman who leads the rituals in a village as a leader, uh, because that woman is a different kind of a leader, uh, in a sense that she heals the community and she holds it together. Also she's a teacher, uh, she passes on knowledge, uh, from one generation to the other. And the kind of leadership that she practices is kind of African value-based leadership. Um, So communities are, I think now the whole world is in a challenging space in terms of uh, getting around building communities. The notion of climate change and all the bars that we are using lately Uh, When I read that, I read that as like, go and build your communities. Mm. Because uh, once you do that, the answers will come uh, from members of the community. So the latest for me is that we have been given land in a rural village. Um, uh, It's part of my ancestral land um
0: mm-hmm. so where is the land it is, where is in, the land?
1: in Hammanskral a village in kraal, uh, like an hour north of Pretoria okay yeah so the intention is to create what we call a community shrine a place where people can come for learning healing and sustainable living
0: mm-hmm.
1: so that um, when you are troubled and uh, you want to get away and be in nature, as an example, or you want to be uh, uh, in community with, with other people. And the focus, I'm working mainly with elders uh, in mm-hmm. the village, and that's why my organization is called Africa Ikalafe Kalafe Pluriversity. I like that pluriversity, that you've worked away from the
0: diversity.
1: Yeah. We we acknowledge a pluriverse of knowledges, not just one way of knowing, because a university teaches you one way of knowing, uh, right, which is Western. So a pluriversity in our case is we intend to reclaim uh, the knowledges that had been erased and suppressed and also bring it into all kinds of curricula, uh, mm. all the kind of activities that we're doing. Um, and, and that's, I guess, it's an exciting project, but challenging. I mean, I've started a, a few projects from the start in my lifetime, but I think you get to an age where you realize that, uh, yo, I don't have that energy, you know. Yeah, that I used I'm going to... to be more selective. <laughs> I don't have the same energy that I used to have. But the beauty uh, for me now is that I'm surrounded by a lot of young people. uh, Oh, that's so energizing. Who are eager to learn and who are also very informed. They are kind of uh, um, informed in technology, right? And they Mm. they know how to package the information in such a way that it can reach their peers. Um, mm. so we are at the early, early, early stages. Um, at the moment we are at the phase of putting together, a, uh, putting up a fence. It's in a, in a bush, putting up a fence. And then from there, um, we'll start, uh, raising money to start, uh, building small little round houses. And that's how a, a new community is going to emerge. And um, I see this as a place where people from all over the world, is go- they're going to come and visit. Um, because- Will people
0: be able to stay? People yeah, will be able to stay. Yeah, that's the,
1: ulti- that's the, the, the plan. Uh, people should be able to stay. I mean, you have across the world, you have spaces where ecologists and uh, you know, ecotourism spaces, where people go to. Mm. Um, so I'm kind of like putting together something like that, but that draws okay. that draws from African indigenous knowledge, and that of also involves the elders in the villages.
0: Okay, this also takes you to that place that I'm seeing a lot in your Facebook page of growing your own food.
1: Yes, yeah, I I mean uh, everywhere I go, there has to be a garden, even if if the piece of Ground is the size of a dog. I, it doesn't matter where I am. I grow my own food. I try as much as I can to grow my own food. So, um, what we are going to, the farming enterprises that we are going to do there, the easiest thing to start with is uh, beekeeping. Because what is, is that it easy? Yeah, uh, it will be easy, yeah. Because it's in the bush. It won't need a lot of money and capital on Thursday I'll be talking to a woman who is running a very successful um, you know beekeeping and honey uh, project so she will be our advisor in terms of uh, how we should start and uh, there's faces in terms of how how this will this will progress and it includes um, Things like um, renewable energy. Of course. Um, it includes taking care of the environment. So, the, the, the thing, the idea is people who live in that village must not just talk about sustainable living, they live it. The,
0: yes. Yeah. They've got to walk the talk. Yes. I, I, um, when I came to Cyprus, I lived with my auntie, my father's sister. And she ultimately left her house to me. And she had this one of these old listed homes and this backyard full of orange trees, lemon trees, fig trees. She grew um, zucchini, baby marrows, pumpkins, uh, olives. Mm. And she used to sit and work the land on her own. And she died when she was 90 and she was still in the garden.
1: Yeah. And her
0: last three we- months of life were a bit dodgy. But at the age of 90, I'll be cool with that. Yeah. And I used to tell my son, who I brought here, and he was a baby when I came, he was five and a half, I used to say to him, you know what, look at what she's doing, because if you can manage to just feed your family from the garden, yeah. you're a very wealthy man.
1: True.
0: I mean, I she used to make the olive trees. The olive oil that I had mm. was honey. Mm. Mm. All the courgettes, the, the baby marrows... Just need a little bit of boiling. You didn't even need to salt up nothing. Hmm. Just slightly boiled, and they were honey in your mouth. So, but it didn't work out because I live. I need to. I need money. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And the home needed a lot of money to restore it. Sure. So unfortunately, you had to sell the land. But I, I miss that land now. Mm. Mm. I miss sitting in the garden and seeing, going out and picking a lemon from the lemon tree.
1: Yeah. 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 Or
0: buying. Baby marrows and thinking, nah, these are not like the baby marrows of my. You could see that True. something wrong with these. The others were would melt in your mouth. Yeah. So we do need to go back to remember that our land is fertile.
1: Yes. Provided land. we
0: don't screw. Provided we don't screw it up anymore.
1: No, but also, uh, I mean, how we relate to land is also we we also have to heal our relationship with land. We can't. We we can't be. Uh you know, we can't be uh slaves of extraction. We have to give. There's a way yes, in which you put do back. indigenous agriculture, for instance, and some of the knowledges that we have forgotten. That there is a belief that there's something that you must give back to the land.
0: Uh, you can't just suck out diamonds and on, coal and
1: yes, for it to keep to keep on giving. So there's a need to return to a reciprocal relationship with them, um, and, and that's something that I think a lot, of, a lot of us have lost.
0: Yes, I think we have. We have forgotten that, at, like you as a human being, you cannot keep on giving.
1: Yeah. It's as, as simple true. as that. That's true.
0: I remember when my mother and father were both sick and I said to my siblings, you know what, for us to be able to keep supporting and loving these two human beings, Someone has got to give us, because we are not a battery. That's an endless, or do they, Duracell battery that keeps on going on? Yeah, you've got to replenish your own energy, and it's the same yeah. thing. It's a, yeah. I like that reciprocal relationship with the earth. You've mm. got to remember that the earth mm. is not endless. Mm. It's not endless. Mm. Yeah, um, I'm really enjoying listening. Remind, remembering the African wisdom. Right. Um, tell me, is there anything else you would like to? And add before we end this conversation, that we would could carry on forever. But I know, <laughs> <laughs> but we'll yeah. stop now. Yes, is there anything else you would like to add? I think before that, we close. No,
1: I'm I'm very happy that we had this opportunity uh, um, to talk about the work that I do. Uh, I think what it does when you speak about when I speak about the work that I do and where I I have been in the past and where I'm going. Um, you know, it's also, it's also important for us to be aware of the contribution and the impact that we made in this lifetime. You know, especially as you grow older, um, to, I always talk about letting go of the future that you never had.
0: <laughs> uh, that
1: means that, uh, you accept where you are at in life. Um, You accept fully the life that you have lived. Um, There's not much we can do about the past, but what we can do if you want to change the past is uh, perhaps there's always this voice that you have been carrying throughout your entire life about a wound that kept knocking and wanting some attention, but you felt that you can't deal with it and you ran away. Um, I think that's the work that we can do. Um, I see healing as a work of self-love.
0: Absolutely. When
1: you create time and space for you to heal um, is the work of self-love. So I I do it for me. Um, and as I heal, I know that the reverberations will kind of... Uh, Um, uh, move uh, to my children and to my community as well.
0: No, I I like that self, it's the ultimate care of, um, healing is the ultimate gift to yourself. It is. Of self-care. It is. Of self-care. Yeah. Because we do see ourselves being angry or reacting in ways we don't like or doing things we're not proud of. Yeah. And when you step back you think, I don't like that. I want not to be able to react in the same way if this happens again. So, yes, and I've had two. I've had two close health challenges in the last few years that have made me realize that unless I start loving me, mm. yeah, the universe keeps on knocking on my head and saying, "Yeah, girlfriend, you're not listening yeah, to me." Yeah, because one, <laughs> Look thing, <in> <laughs> one thing that you Look do very well is forget yes we have and a... then something happens and you think whoopsie. Yeah.
1: yeah the pandi- uh, forgetting is a pandemic
0: you know so. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it's forgetting okay. i think it's selective memory <laughs> i think it's selective memory that we choose to remember certain things and forget other things but i do. i the healing is the biggest gift of love to you you can give to yourself right true biggest gift of love yes. um tell me you, you mentioned a website That we can hear these little videos. Is that on the africakalafe.org website or is it another website?
1: Yeah, it is the africaekalafe.org.
0: Okay, I'll put the website on the blurb when I upload this interview. Um, I would like us to speak again, not necessarily on a podcast, just to have a conversation because I do, um, for some reason, I am feeling my African roots are knocking on my head and saying, listen, learn. You've got something to get back. Okay. So let's make, we'll make an appointment going forward to just have a chat. A normal chat over a cup of coffee or black tea or whatever.
1: Okay. All right. Okay. Yes.
0: Lovely to meet you you eventually, Machilo. Thank you. And to the listeners, thank you for listening and have a lovely rest of the day.
1: Okay. Thank you.
0: The first trilingual podcast
1: station of Cyprus. Island Talks. Open. Diverse. Free.